Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Hey, morning. We're in a series called Listening to the Father, right? Where we're trying to ask the question, what does God's voice sound like in our life? What, how does he speak? Um, what's the tone that he uses? What kinds of things would he say to us? How do we recognize his voice from other voices? Because I really truly believe at the heart of the Christian life is not just going through the motions, but walking in relationship with God, right? We say adamantly we're, we're, not, we're not at its foundation uh, a religion. It's about relationship, right? They're not just about going through the motions and doing the right things and following all the rules. The relationship that we have with God through Christ is real. And so relationships, like people talk to one another, right? It's a super weird relationship if you never talk to one another. You can say, oh, we're tight. But if you just walk by and not, like, there's no conversation. So how do we take that into God? How do we listen for his voice in our life and not make up fruity stuff, but like, God speaks in a consistent voice through history, right? So how do we take what he's already said and listen to what he's now saying, which will always be in agreement, but learn to fine-tune our radar and to tune into the voice of God and pay attention to him? I ran across a quote this week that says, Satan's evil scheme is not to get us to say there is no God, but to say there is a different God than the one the Bible teaches. The scheme begins in our minds, right? Satan's scheme is not altogether to say there is no God, but to say God's different than what the Bible says. If God has given us the Bible to reveal himself, to show himself to us, and it's good and it's a gift and we can see that and say, oh my God, you're wonderful. The enemy's job would be to say, I doubt that. I don't think that's true. It's different than what God says he is, right? That scheme begins in our mind. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, But we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take cap- captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. There are a lot of thoughts about God. But our job is to take those thoughts captive and to say, Is this true? Is this true? Is this the voice of God? Is this something he would say? And if it's not, I'm going to throw it away. One of my favorite questions uh, is kind of a rhetorical one, is what if God isn't who you think he is, and neither are you? And that is to say, if you've grown up or if you're walking in a place where you think God's angry with me, or he looks at me and he's just disappointed, or he just shakes his head and like, oh, oh, what a frustration. Like, what if that's not who God is? And what if you're not a disappointment? What if he looks at you and he doesn't see a reject or somebody who is just inconsequential or like, I mean, I'll admit there's a song on Christian radio right now that I don't like, and I think I get their intent, but there's a line like, I'm just a beggar in front of God or something like that. And I think, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't call my kids beggars. I mean, at times, right? (laughs) Can I have some Cheetos? No, for the hundredth time but that's not who they are and the core of who they are. They're my daughters, my son. We are not beggars in front of God. And so we demolish that kind of thought. We just take it captive and we say, no, you have to go somewhere else. You don't belong here. So what does it look like for us 
What does it look like for us to hear God? When we just we got back from Senegal a little while ago, and in Senegal, one of the great joys that I have, that we as a team have, is we get to pray a lot for people, right? We had the medical clinic over two days, and we had 400 different people come through, and like three, a handful of them declined prayer. And the rest of them said, I'd really like it if you pray for me. And we're just very clear up front, we're going to pray in Jesus' name. Are you okay with that? Because I don't, I mean, I don't want to force that on you, but if you're asking for it, I'm not going to be squeamish. I'm going to be bold. And they will. And my prayer this year, over and over and over, is God, you are great, and God, you are good. And at its simplest foundation, if we understand God like that, God, God is great, and God is good. That is, God is all-powerful. He is mighty. He is amazing. He created everything. He's got all the power in the universe right at his fingertips. And he's good. And he's loving. He's not, uh, in the core of who he is, angry. He's great. And he's good. He's powerful. And he's loving. That's a God that I want to get to know. Because he's true. That's who God is. And that's a God that I want to pray that other people wake up into. Today we're going, to take, um, we're going to take a look at two real people's lives coming out of the Bible, David and Saul. One of them is coming from an orphan heart, is what we'll call it, not really feeling like he belongs, not knowing his place, kind of scratching for existence. And one is coming from a place of adoption or being a son or daughter, right? But David, David, just to give it away, David comes from the place of being a son, Saul comes from the place of being an orphan. That's kind of core in who they are. Here are some examples that we'll see. Here are the differences, if we can put this slide up. The characteristics of orphans versus characteristics of sons and daughters. The heart of Saul versus the heart of David. The characteristics of orphans would say they're, they, they stay hidden. They hide away, especially, especially if the spotlight is going to go on them or they come to trouble, they tend to hide. Where a son or daughter rises up in obedience. There's a moment, we've talked about Kairos moments, where God breaks in in the moment, and then sons or daughters in those moments say, I'm here and I'm ready. Characteristic of an orphan would be they waver between pride and shame. Feelings of inferiority, which is shame, or superiority, which is pride. And I think they're connected to the same thing. Okay? They're not altogether different. They just kind of swing one way or the other. Where... The characteristics of son and daughter is humility. And humility is not thinking just low of yourself. It's having a right understanding of who you are. So there's strength and there's weakness in humility. Like Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. That's pretty standard knowledge, right? And at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses writes, unless someone's wrapping it up for him, Moses was the most humble person in the world. And that strikes us as funny, but I want to say it could be true. He could both write it and have it be true. Because humility isn't thinking low of yourself. It's having a right view of yourself. So you could say, I'm, I, I genuinely am humble. Now, if that's you saying it doesn't make it true, right? But if it's true and you say it, it doesn't make it false. Does that make sense? Okay. Characteristic of an orphan would be that they're grasping. They're, they're continually trying to say, what can I grab? What can I hold on to? What can I get? What can I accomplish? Where the characteristics of a daughter or son is they, they tend to live open-handed. I've been given a whole lot, and I can give a lot away. I don't have to, like, cling to stuff. Duty versus love. 
just going through the motions and checking things off versus like a, a love and a joy of I get to do this. I'm privileged to be able to do this. Crushed by criticism versus the ability to accept wise words, accept wise criticism, and just brush the rest off, right? Say, no, that part's not true. I'm going to find the gold in there. I'll grow from that, and the rest, that's just going to bounce off me. An orphan is going to constantly be trying to build their own kingdom because they don't have a place. They don't have a place to belong. It's, it's not just like, oh, those ugly orphan, right? It's like, no, I totally get it. I totally understand why you would. You just don't have to stay there. Building your own kingdom versus living in God's kingdom. Attached to title and position. I need a title to feel like I'm worth something. Or a position to feel like I have value. Versus uh, viewing leadership as a servant role. Risk averse versus free to risk. People who guard their reputation versus people who like say, I don't care about my reputation. I'm just going to live. And like my reputation will come and go. I'll have good days and I'll have bad days. And people's opinions of me don't define me. And then that last one, I get value from accomplishments. As somebody who lives with the spirit, uh, uh, the spirit of an orphan, I find my value in what I do. And then kudos and acclamations that people say, well done. Well, that increases my value. Versus somebody who lives as a daughter and son finds their value in what God says. And who God says they are and how he breathes life into them. Not about whether they do well or poorly, because both are going to be true, right? I've had a lot of sermons that are just not good. That doesn't decrease my value. Some of them are super good. But if I find my value in how I do as a pastor, like there are going to be, my value is going to go up and down like depending on feelings and emotions and uh, performance reviews and all, all kinds of stuff. But that's not where I put it. It can't be. Oh, it can be, but it ought not be, right? We can find our purpose and our value in who God says we are. And when we do that, we're in the most solid place we can be. So we're going to take a look at these two guys today, and I want to see if you can spot these uh, from the list in these stories of Saul and David. So first, we're going to open up. If you have a Bible, we're going to spend quite a bit of time in 1 Samuel, and we're going to try and clip through some of these. 1 Samuel 9, verses 1 and 2, I want to introduce you to King Saul, who becomes king. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, that's not Saul, the son of Abiel, the son of Zerar, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. This is a great intro, right? Saul like goes into the Bible being called handsome. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. Oh, like pour it on. Thank you. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Like tall dude, handsome dude. Um, this, is a, this is a good start. But you can already see, where, where is his value being placed? Like outward appearance. That's not a steady foundation. If we skip ahead to verse 16, 1 Samuel 9, 16, God is talking. He says, tomorrow about this time, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. So what's going on is the people have been following God, and they come to a place where like, we want to be like all the other nations. We want a king. 
And God says, you're not going to really like it when you get a king. When you get a king, he's going to take all these things from you and like taxes are going to go up. It's much better if you follow me. And they're like, thank you, we want a king. I'm like, okay, I'll give you a king. I'll give you what you ask for, right? So tomorrow I'm going to send a guy and I want you to anoint him as the prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. So this king is going to do some good things for God's people. I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. His people are oppressed by the Philistines, big, strong people, an army, and God's going to send what they're asking for, and they will find some kinds of freedom. Skip ahead to verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribes of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. You know how they're picking a king? You know how the, like the course of action that God is leading? Draw straws. Get a, get a bunch of people, draw straws. Okay, from that people, draw straws. And God's like orchestrating this. They're not using just human wisdom and like uh, mapping it all out. There's actually like God is leading through this what seems random. So Saul's straw gets pulled. Verse 22 So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he's hidden himself among the baggage. And they ran and took him from there. So, like, this is awesome. They're trying to find their king that God is giving them. They're like, It's Saul. Where's Saul? You're the lucky guy. And he's hiding in the closet. Like, he's literally hiding away. He does not want to be found. They ran and they took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Well, what do you see? From a worldly standpoint, Saul has a really good start. He seems like it's got it all. Like you could look at him and say, Oh, he looks kingly, right? And yet, when his name is called, where is he? He's hiding. Is it because of humility? I don't think so. I don't think he's like, no, no, I couldn't. Or like, okay, I'll step into it. If God's, if God's leading, then I'll go there. I'll trust him. It, that's not, what Saul's doing is not humility. It's fear. They're very different. Humility and fear are very, very different. In the moment, Saul feels inferior. Interestingly, like he doesn't stay there his whole life. Saul, I think, swings from feeling inferior to feeling superior. And humility dwells in neither of those places. If you look at yourself and you feel inferior to others, or if you look at yourself and you feel superior to others, like that's, that's not a good place to live in. That's not a place that God gives us. Humility, again, is just a correct view of yourself. So that's, that's how Saul starts, right? So the Philistines and Goliath, if you know that story, they march, this huge army marches on God's people, and Goliath, who is thought to be like nine feet tall, comes out and he starts to taunt them day after day and day after day. And he says, Rather than having this uh, battle where, like, there's a ton of blood, let's just do a one-on-one, right? 
why don't you send your best warrior to take me on? Whoever wins this death match, like, the other will serve the one, right? If I win, then all of God's people come, you'll be our slaves. If your man comes and beats me, then we'll bow to you. We'll, like, serve you, okay? We'll just cut through the battle part, and he's just taunting. He's taunting. 1 Samuel 17, 8 through 11. Or 8 through 11. Maybe not. I have 10. 10 and 11. Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Do you see a pattern starting in Saul? He's hiding. He's afraid. Uh, Goliath says, send me a man. And he's afraid. So this guy lives in fear. Now here's a different character, David. It, unexpected that we would get this guy, right? He's tending his father's flocks. He's a shepherd, and he's charged to bring nourishment, to bring food to his older brothers on uh, the battlefield. So he comes, and he hears the taunts of Goliath, and he's like, who is this guy? Who is this guy that would taunt God's people? The people of the living God, this guy's just shouting at us and nobody's doing a thing. What is happening? And they're like, shut up. Like, shut up. And he just keeps saying it. So Saul eventually hears what David is saying and he's like, hey, bring the boy to me. I want to hear this. And he's like 15 to 18, somewhere in there at this point in his life. When 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 32, David is before the king. David is before Saul. It says, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of Goliath, your servant, which is third person talking. He's like, I will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, I used to keep sheep for, uh, for his father. And when, they, when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Is David afraid? There's a different spirit going on in David, right? David knows the living God. He keeps referencing the living God Remember my prayer in Senegal? God, you are great and you are good. That's who David is calling on. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, Lord be with you. And Saul clothed David with his armor. Because this is what Saul would do. If I'm going to go out to war, I'm going to put on all my armor. So you're going to go out, you're small, like, you got all my resources. Everything at my disposal is here for you. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested him. This is not his armor. He doesn't like how it feels. It's not working. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these. I haven't tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand 
and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David and his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth. I was like, are you serious? I thought I was going to get some kind of champion. I thought I was going to get some kind of... You guys are mocking me. This is an insult. You're sending a boy to me. He disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. What do you see? A little bit different picture. Saul is constantly afraid, and David is like, I'm not afraid, not because I've got a suit of armor or a sword. I'm not even going to take that stuff. I, God has given me a skill set that I'm going to use, and God is God. Who is this Philistine calling on his gods that aren't really even real? God is God, and people are going to know it today. This is true humility. David's confident, not because of who he is, but because of whose he is. David's confidence comes not because of who he is, but whose he is. Worldly vision wouldn't have told that story. David knows his true identity. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14 are some of my favorite verses. When I was in student ministry and I'd send birthday cards I would often write out these verses for kids to look up to say, I want, on your birthday, I want you to know how valuable you are. And I want you to know where your value comes from. God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. David wrote that. David wrote that. He's saying, God, everything about me, you knit together. You took great care And love was your motivator. You cherished me, and I know it. My soul knows it. Time goes on, and David grows in fame. And Saul grows in jealousy. He's getting nervous that David might uh, take his throne. So you remember the the grasping versus the open-handed difference? This, This comes like full scale. Saul sends David out to battle, maybe hoping that David would get killed in battle. In 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 9, that didn't happen. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. So Saul's there, and they're greeting him, and they're celebrating, and it's all good. And then they sing a song. Saul has struck down the thousands, and David his ten thousands. 
And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. It's not enough that he was complimented, that they were celebrating with him. Somebody was being celebrated above him. That's not good for Saul. Somebody was being celebrated more than he was. Saul got very angry. This saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? Like, what else is left? Then he becomes king. He's going to take it all from me. And Saul eyed David from that day on. Saul was afraid, and then he got graspy. He viewed uh, his value in a title, in a position. And when someone else would seem to threaten that, he got angry, and he started to, like, view David as an enemy. Saul was afraid, and he felt like David's success meant his downfall. So to an orphan, power is a zero-sum game, right? If somebody else grows in power, that means I must come down in power. And I don't think that's God's economy. I don't think that's God's economy. I think we're called to help people rise in power, and as people rise in power, so do we. Like, it's not zero-sum, it increases. Does that make sense? So, I don't know if... I was just thinking about this. This is like trivial, but here's an example. Back when I was on staff at community church in student ministry, from time to time I would get to preach. And um, I had a different preaching style than senior pastor Ken. And when he got up to introduce me, he would always compliment me. He would always say, like, Shannon's a really good communicator. He's good at connecting. He's got a gift of teaching on him. Like, we're going to get blessed today. You could tell that Ken wasn't threatened by me right? Ken was confident in who he was. We're different, and he's going to highlight strengths of mine that God is growing and building and saying, we're going to be blessed as Shannon uses his gifts. If he wasn't confident or if he saw me as a threat, do you think that he introduces and says, we're all going to get blessed? That intro changes, right? It's fearful or timid or like, "Mm, you know, the youth pastor's coming, get ready. You don't know what's going to come out of his mouth right? But he's okay. He's okay. So I switched that in Senegal. This was a really cool uh, experience. And please, as I share this, I don't want to like brag on me, okay? We had this baptism in the village and they said 18 people are getting baptized and we'd like a couple people from your team to lead the way. And so like I got to go up and baptize people and then David from Sheboygan got to come up. David's never baptized anybody before. And so he's kind of got the like deer in his headlights uh, look to him, like, what are we doing? And I said, Dave, how about I lead the first few? And you, you just pay attention. Listen to what I do. Follow what I do. And then, and then you give it a try. Right? So I baptized the first three people, uh, talking them through it. And Dave's watching and I say, okay, you ready? He's like, yeah, I think so. So he baptizes one. He's like, that was awesome. And then the second one, and he's growing, and he baptized 15 people. So, because I, I, don't, I don't need it for my identity or my value or for, like, the people to think, oh, yeah, Shannon's a great and powerful leader, right? Actually, like, pull the curtain back, and you can actually see the real me. But Dave gets to rise, and it was so much fun being able to walk with him and then stand at his shoulder and then give him that and say, this is something that God is calling us, us 
into. I love that. So can you see the significant differences between the spirit of Saul and the spirit of David? Having an orphan heart manifests its way uh, into a life of lacking, a life of scarcity. The spirit of daughter or sonship means that you know you're taken care of. You know you have more than enough. That's why David can write Psalm 23. David wrote Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That doesn't mean I don't have any desires. What he's saying, I shall not be in want. I shall not, I won't lack for anything. God's going to take care of me, right? He leads me beside still waters. He quiets my soul. I've been meditating a lot on what does it mean to have a quiet soul rather than a soul that's just kind of like ah, distracted and running every different way. David's like, God quiets me in the uh, most inward places and the storm around can't affect that. And it's like surely goodness will follow me all the days of my life. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a spirit that David has because he knows who's he is. Contrast that with um, that shepherd, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in one. With the hired hand that John mentions, or that Jesus mentions in John 10, 11 through 13. He says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He's a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them up and scatters them. He flees. This is the hired hand. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So a hired hand is just doing it out of duty, not out of joy, not out of like a blessing that he's been given and then he can give. He's got no love for the sheep. It's just duty. And so if, if I'm going to be threatened, like I'm going to take care of my own. I'm going to protect me. Fear takes over Saul. And Saul flees. When you're taken care of, you're also empowered to take care of others. But Jesus didn't wrestle with his identity. He, didn't, he, he knew who he was. He knew the Father intimately. And he, he said, if you want to see the Father, you look at me. He says, I am the good shepherd. Like the one that David talked about in Psalm 23, I am the best picture you will ever get of a good shepherd. And a good shepherd lays down his life. A good shepherd doesn't protect his own life and like watch others get shredded. A good shepherd lays down his life. And Jesus says, that's me. And that's, that's the spirit of Jesus coming out that we get, that we get as daughters and sons of God. David showed that with Goliath. Back in 1 Samuel 17, 45 to 47 and David said this to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. All of a sudden, if I'm Goliath, I might feel a little bit nervous. Like, oh, he's speaking with a different kind of authority than I'm used to. What, where is he going? This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. How many times has Goliath heard that? I don't know, actually. Nine foot tall? I bet the taunts against him didn't amount to much. 
We'll give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know. That's even God's people. All this assembly, even God's people, will know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hand. That David's willing to risk because he's secure. Now, this is the lie all the way back in the garden. When the serpent comes and he says, did God really say, like, you can eat this fruit? And Eve looks at it and it's like, it looks desirable. It looks good. I think God's holding out on us. I'm going to grab it. I'm going to take a bite. Adam's right here. I'm going to hand it to you. Try it. God's holding out on me. We will not have all we need. We will still lack. There's something that we don't have, and we want to take it for ourselves. Which spirit is crying out in the garden? Is it daughter and sonship? Or is it the orphan spirit calling? Like, they're giving room to a lot of places that God never intended them to live in. They walk away from God. God get, that spirit gets ripped out of them by their doubt, and they're like, we don't know if God is going to take care of us. And that's the lie that's being told to them. Now contrast that with the security of a beloved child. David writes Psalm 31, verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Is it scarcity? He uses the word abundant. Oh, how abundant is your goodness. Psalm 103, 2 through 5. Bless the Lord, O my soul, David writes, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Psalm 103, 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verse 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Like, take a look at the words that David uses to describe God and their relationship as abundant goodness. He uses the word, like, he heals all diseases. He redeems your life. He crowns, crowns you with steadfast love. The Lord is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. Abounding in steadfast love. Not abounding in flippant love. Abounding in, like, eh, I'm not feeling it today, love. Right? Abounding in a steadfast. You cannot break the love of God. You cannot dim the love of God. It is abounding and it is always. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him. When the Bible uses the word fear in like this, like fear God, it's talking about humility. It's talking about having a right view of yourself. Like I'm not God, he is. I'm going to stand in a correct posture. But it also then says, if he calls me son, if he calls me daughter, I don't have to be afraid of him, right? Fear in the Bible when it says fear the Lord is very different than fear of the world. 
Fear of the world says, I'm going to cower. I'm going to run. The fear of God says, I'm free. I know who you are, and I'm protected. I'm not going to go my own way and step out from underneath your umbrella. I'm going to stand right here because I have a deep reverence and respect for you because I know that I'm loved. So the fear of the Lord actually grows confidence. It's actually life-giving, not life-draining. And this is why Jesus came. John 14, 6 through 9, Jesus talks about him being the way to the Father. Jesus said, people saying, we don't know where you're going. How do we follow you? How can we, how can we know the way to the Father? And he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him because you've seen me. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. That's enough for us. Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Like, we see Jesus and we see the Father. John 16, 26 and 27 Jesus says, in that day, there's coming a day, and in that day, I will ask in my, uh, you will, in that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you love me and believe that I came from God. Jesus is saying, you don't need me as a go-between, Right? A lot of different religions, you pray to a saint or you pray to like somebody and you're like, what, would you go before God to me so that God will bless me? And he's like, That's, that, those days are gone. Like you're going to pray in my name and you're going to go straight to the Father. You will have access to the Father because you're his kids, because you're his daughters and sons and you don't need a go-between. Jesus died so that the separation could be removed. So now we are reunited. We live in relationship with the Father. Now, I don't, I don't just want this for you. Can we put that slide up again? Going back to like Saul and David and the differences. I don't just want you to transfer from hidden to rising up in obedience. I don't just wish that uh, you could move from being proud or ashamed to having a true spirit of humility. I don't just want you to go from grasping to open-handed or from duty to love. I don't just wish that you could move from orphans to children. It's already true. If you are in Christ, it is already true. The Bible says in Romans 8, 15 through 17, that he, he gave us a spirit of sonship. That we cry out, Abba, Father. Though we don't have a spirit of orphans. We don't have it in us. We have daughter and sonship. That's who you are in your core identity. Now, you may struggle with those things. That's true. But at your very core in Christ, he's given you a spiritual heart transplant. And the rest of the stuff is falling off. That's called sanctification, Right? Sanctification will happen the rest of your life as you take off the old and you put on the new. But what happens when you come to Christ is you get a heart transplant. He takes out the dead, non-beating heart. 
and he puts in one that is fully alive. And the old is gone, and the new has come. So you don't have to wish and hope for a spirit of daughter or sonship. You already have it. If you're in Christ, you already have it. You need to realize it. You need to, you need to live into it. But your, your prayer doesn't need to be, God, please give that to me. I, I'm struggling and I feel ashamed. That doesn't need to be your prayer. Your prayer can be, God, I don't feel it. But thank you. Help me realize it. Help me see it. Help me see what you've already given me. What is already there. That I am not a beggar. I'm a son or daughter of the king. That's already there. I will say, you know, it's like if you go and if you go outside and you play in the mud and you come inside and you're filthy and your mom or dad would say, hey, go clean up, take a shower and you get a shower and you're like, oh, good. I'm just going to put on the same muddy clothes. Right. That's kind of maybe a little bit like Christians living in a spirit of the orphan. Like God has already cleaned us. The work has already been done. And then we choose to put this stuff on. Like dirty, muddy clothes. Or we haven't yet opened ourselves up to like letting that stuff fall off. Like I'm, I'm just going to hold on to it. Because I, I'm not sure yet if I can really trust God. If he really loves me the way that he says he does. So what I would plead with you today is if you find yourself living on the left side of that list, say it. Say, God, I'm going to give that to you. God, I'm going to open up. Help me trust you. You know, like the guy who comes and he asks Jesus to heal his child. He says, like, is it possible? Jesus said, all things are possible if you believe. He said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I think there's a way to believe in Jesus and have your life in Jesus and yet have space to grow in your belief, right? Christians can wrestle with doubts. But the prayer is, help my unbelief. Help me grow in knowing who you are so I can grow in trusting who you are, so I can grow in understanding who I am. You've already made me. So I want to I give you just a moment right now. I want you to look at the list and I want you to... I want you to see if there's anything that you're clinging to that today you would say, I just want to release that. I want to let, I don't have to hold on to that anymore. That's not true of me. In Christ, I'm a son or a daughter. I can let this go. If you identify different areas, like you can, you can actually just physically, the rest, the rest of the time that we're in worship, you can just open up your hands and say, God, I release it. I give it to you. I don't have to lift that anymore. Or if you want to grab somebody and you want to say, hey, hey, I would love your help in letting this go. Could you pray with me? Then find somebody and pray with them. If you feel alone and you don't know what to do, like come and find me. Or Keith, or Karina. Or, like there's so many people here who love you who would want to be with you in that moment and to speak truth to you and to pray with you. To help that, you don't have to be alone if that's what you're feeling. You're, you're not alone, even if that's what you're feeling. 
and I'm going to take a risk, kind of measuring this out in, in advance. It, I don't know if there's anybody in the room who looks at this and says, I'm not struggling with this, but I, I am sure that somebody in here is. And if, if that's like God's burning in you right now to say, I want to come up and I want to pray against this for somebody here who needs it. I don't know your name. I don't know who it is, but I'm going to pray for you because God knows who it is. If somebody has that burning, I'm just going to like uh, invite you to come up. Does anybody feel like you have something burning on that left side that you want to pray against for somebody here? If, like, if not, that's okay. Anybody feel that? All right, I'll give the second Holy Spirit nudge. Like, if you're, like, holding on to it and you're like, I'm not sure, but maybe this will be the one that says, yeah, get up. Brad. Um, I don't know if this is from the Lord or not. I, w I walked in with this this morning, but I, I walk around with this uh, most of the time in my Christian walk, but it's just uh, for the heart of men and in uh, and, and the heart of our walk. And it's uh, something that we call in, in our groups every man's battle. And it's, it's how we view the women in our lives, the women in, in, our, our, uh, in the world. And um, more than likely, there's at least one of us in here that has struggled with this at one point in time, or we know somebody who did or has. Um, so this prayer that I have right now uh, goes out to anyone who is struggling, who tries to find um, freedom in something other than Christ. Um, so if you just bow with me, and, and if this is for you, great. This is not for you. Um, cast that prayer into somebody that you know. Um, God, we're just here together as a group, as a family, uh, because we want more of you in our lives and more of each other. Thank you for this space that you created for us to come together each week so that we can uh, get to know you and get, get to know each other. Uh, Lord, I'm just specifically praying for the hearts of men uh, that they would turn uh, from whatever might be grabbing them down. All that, that shame and condemnation that they feel that's not who we are. Uh, as Shannon's preached today, we are uh, your sons and daughters. We, our identity is in you and not in what we do. Uh, just praying for that spirit to be lifted from the men in this place right now, that they can just cast that heaviness upon you, that they not feel the weight of that anymore, Lord. That's why you have come to set us free. Uh, I just pray that each, each man uh, who ha might be having something that they're struggling with would seek out someone in this church, like Shannon said, someone like Keith or, or one of the elders or Shannon or anyone, and say, hey, that's me. I, I think I need to connect with someone here. Um, would you have coffee with me? Can I come to your community group? Uh, let that be uh, happen in this place, Lord, that this would continue to be a place of your just welcoming and your spirit and your Holy Spirit would just run through this place and we might just reach this city uh, 
become more like you. And in that process of that journey that we're on, Lord, help us to uh, look back with the humbled confidence that Shannon talked about today, knowing that we're not forsaken, that you are here with us at all times. And we love you, Lord. We trust you. And uh, just more of you, Lord, more of you in Jesus' name. One of the last things that I think the, the spirit of daughter or sonship produces is we move from despair to gratitude. We move from like, I'm not good enough or I don't have hope or I don't know that I'll ever be to, God, what have you already done? God, you have already done it. And I'm so grateful, right? And so this morning as we end, I want to invite you into gratitude. If you have something that you'd like to talk with somebody about or pray with somebody about it, like have that invitation, have that conversation. And don't like just kind of push that away. But I want to encourage you, I'm going to invite you into gratitude. Let the songs that we sing to finish the service be songs sung with gratitude for what God has already done in your life. We're going to celebrate communion as we reflect back uh, the sacrifice that Jesus made because of his great love. And for the joy set before him, like he endured that. He didn't come begrudgingly. He didn't come like, oh, fine, I'll fix this mess that they made. He said, I want, I want them back. And he came for joy. And so we'll celebrate that and take the cup and take the cracker. And we remember who he is and we remember the life that he gave us. And we sing with gratitude. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. We thank you that uh, when we look at you, we see the Father. We thank you that when we, um, we get to know your heart, we get to erupt in gratitude. I pray that you would help us uh, to continue to take off the clothes of the old life and put on this new wardrobe that you have for us. And we say thank you today for the value that you have given us to the identity that you have given us. Pray for deeper and deeper understanding that we would see you more clearly so we could trust you more wholeheartedly and live more fully. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.